this week, um, I watched a TV show. It was a very unique TV show I watched this week. Um, it was written back, it was produced, it came out in 2020. It came out about a month before the NBA shut down their, their games due to COVID. And the story that these people wrote to do a TV show about was about what if, basically their premise was, what if like a Spanish flu happened in the modern world? And they wrote this what if story, and it came out two weeks before COVID hit. So I finally decided to turn on this show and give it a watch. Like, what would they get right? Would they get wrong? This episode was a, the first episode I watched uh, was very stressful. It was about like them talking about this, they called the Egypt flu in the TV show because it came from the Middle East, not from China, and how it you know, moved through the world. And it was freaky what they got right and what they got wrong, like how it, you know, it was different in each. In our world versus this pretend world, they just kind of guessed at. But watching the show created in me um, memories. I remembered uh, my, my brother Jesus was at the NBA game here in, in Detroit when the guy touched all the microphones. Remember that? He's like, oh, I got COVID, dur, 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 and he had COVID. It was, cra- it was crazy. I don't remember that. And the next day, the NBA shut down. Then the schools shut down. I mean, just you watch the dominoes fall, and before you know it, schools and the chur- churches and businesses are all just shut down. Watching the show, I watched it alone at night. Everyone was asleep, and I felt in my heart this uh, feeling of, like, it was triggering, you know what I'm saying? And for me, it was triggering because um, when the world shut down uh, in the city of Flint, all of our services shut down too. All of our food banks shut down. Our warming centers closed early, and people had to go into the cold streets. It was still cold when all that happened. It was March, and March, Michigan means cold. And so I got a call from Jenny County Sheriff. They asked all these pastors in the area, can you basically, because all these services shut down, we're asking pastors to help the sheriff care for shut-ins. So I was basically deputized to drive around and bring supplies to, to shut-ins, to the elderly, to the sick. I had to wear like a big old N95 mask, you know. I was, I was, I washed my hands, okay, I'm not a gross person, but I started washing my hands way more than I ever had and longer. Remember they told us, sing happy birthday, right? They say it three times at first, is that what they said? I, I was like, da, 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 da. man, this is someone's having a good birthday. But I, I watch bands all the time. So I was being really careful. And in March 2020, I still got the coronavirus. I was one of the first guys in the city to get it. Um, I remember going to the dock, and they had no COVID tests. Everyone was so scared, they had a lack of COVID tests at first, see if you had it. And my dock got a hold of one. So I, I drove there, and at first I had a fever. And I'm like, Angie, it's not the coronavirus. I, I talk so much trash in a week. <laughs> I once thought that I was invincible to all disease because I've been married for 19 years and never had gotten a flu. I'm like, Angie, the Lord made me invincible to germs. And I talk to her, I ain't going to get coronavirus, come on. And I get this fever and I'm like, it's nothing. And I didn't believe it was coronavirus until I woke up one morning I went to breathe in, and it, the breath stopped. It was a very unique feeling when you go to, like, like, when you, like, breathing in a fresh, like, a whole chest full of air just feels good. Just, I went to breathe in, it just stopped. Like, something was wrapped around my chest. I'm like, something's wrong. And I was scared. And I went to the doc, and the doc, I remember he came out, 
and his nurse came out with him. The nurse put him in a full hazmat suit. This is early coronavirus. So he's in a parking lot in Flint, full hazmat, and I'm like, I am in real trouble. <laughs> and he came, he swabbed me, and a couple hours later he called, he said, you have coronavirus. And our house was put on, you know, we couldn't go anywhere. And uh, for the next two weeks, I um, got worse and worse and worse. And there came a day where my, my wife was on the phone with her sister and a nurse, and they're like they're counting my breaths and my and I, it's all going really bad. My, mom, my wife called Hurley and Hurley was full, um, and I said, Angie, if Hurley's full, I don't want to go there and sit in a hallway on a gurney. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna be if I feel miserable, I want to be miserable at home. And um, so there's a moment where I was breathing uh, very a little, like just just shallow, and I'd have to like just stay just calm and quiet because I'm like, I cannot, I, if I, I can't lose this air. I have so little of it left. And uh, there was one night, Angie's like, if you're not better in the morning, you got to go to the hospital. You're, like, you're, you're, you're fading too fast. And she put her hands on me and she prayed, asked God for my life. And she went to bed and I was alone with the Lord. And for the first time in my adult life, I was like, this thing could kill me. I, I cannot beat this. I'm not strong enough. I have no one I can call. I might lose to this thing. So I had to face the reality of death. And I was sitting there with the Lord. And a question, when you're, when you're powerless, when you're helpless, when you're in pain, an easy question to ask is, Lord, where are you? Because the first thing you want to ask the Lord is for what? Healing. Help. Save me. Don't, like, I got, I'm like, Lord, I got an 11-year-old and a 10-year-old kid. I'm, I'm the sole provider for a family. I, I work and I just stay at home. I'm like, I'm thinking of Flint City Church. I'm like, the work. And all those thoughts are in my mind. I'm, I'm going to begin to start praying about it. And a question rises to the top. Is God in control even of this? Is God in control of my lungs and my breath and this disease? It's a big question. It's a hard answer for a lot of people. In this book called Ezra and Nehemiah, I call it two words because in the Hebrew in the, in the Hebrew Bible it's one book and in English you broke it in half I don't know why we do that sometimes but originally it was one volume this book is all about the plan and the will of God today we talk about is God in control or not we go to Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1 and it says this in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia I'll stop right there in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Where are we? What is happening? Let's go back. Let's start at the beginning go all the way here. God creates Adam and Eve. I mean, when I say going back to the beginning, we're going to the beginning. Adam and Eve made in the image of God, and life is good. They have what they need, connected to the Lord. And Adam and Eve say, you know what? I think life might be better out there. And they choose sin. 
And sin enters the world and breaks everything. Everything. The world destruction, the chaos until in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He says, I'm going to call this man to myself, and from his family, I'm going, to, I'm going to start bringing humanity back to myself. I'm going to call Abraham, and his children will become a nation of priests, and this new nation will bring my glory to all people. Now, it goes slow at first. Abraham has one kid. You know, Abraham is Isaac. Isaac, he has Jacob. But then Jacob has 12 sons. Man, that must have been crazy. And these 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of a sudden you have a tribe. Jacob and his 12 boys. Hey, hey, hey. If you pick on one of those kids, 11 kids are going to beat you up. You know what I'm saying? They run deep. Well, the 11 brothers, well, the 10 brothers, sell Joseph into slavery to Egypt. Joseph brings his brothers with him eventually. And Egypt enslaves the sons of Jacob. In slavery, even in slavery, the Jews thrive, and they begin having babies and babies and babies. They go in with like 140 people. 400 years later, 400 years later, they come out of Egypt over 2 million strong. They come out of there, the most powerful nation in the region. Moses leads them out, right? Let my people go. Moses. And Joshua. And then they finally they, they, have a, they start a kingdom called Israel. Well, God gives the law on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments come. They start this nation. David becomes their king, right? Solomon is their king. And then eventually the kingdom breaks into half through civil war. The northern kingdom is really evil. It falls to Assyria. Jerusalem still stands, and it finally falls to Babylon. And the people of God, given this promised land, the promised land is empty. Almost like God's story came to an end. The Jews now live in exile in Babylon. But Babylon gets eaten by Persia. And eventually Persia will fall to Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. But we're not there yet. We're in Persia. And the Jews are a powerless people. No political power, no military power. They're servants, they're, they're immigrants in a different world called Persia. And Cyrus is the king of this great empire. That's what happens. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, to fulfill this prophecy, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put into writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. This is what the king says. A pagan king, not a Jew, has no regard for the Jewish God. He says this. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he lives, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This pagan king, God moves his heart and says, you need to let the Jews go. There's no Moses here. 
God moves in this, this foreign king's heart and says, listen, you need to let the Jews go and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild my house. And he goes, okay, and he creates a law to let the Jews go. Fulfilling prophecy that Jeremiah spoke 70 years earlier. We see in this moment a very powerful truth. God's purposes, God's purposes, they, God's purposes move the hands of kings. God's purposes moves the hands of kings. This pagan king who had no regard for God, God says, hey, king, wake up and do what I need you to do. And he does it. I want to tell us something as people right now. As Americans, we're a weird lot. In America, you know what Americans are like? It's what Americans are like. We stand for the national anthem and put our hand over our heart and we're reverent like America. When we see a soldier in the military come off a plane, people will clap their hands. Thank you for your service. So on one hand, Americans are very patriotic. But those same Americans who love the flag and clap for the soldiers, those same Americans completely distrust their government. Just this week, some guy said, <laughs> yes, so I do this question and answer time at a, I teach at this place, and they always ask me questions. One guy says, asks a question, he goes, Pastor, if the government takes our guns and tries to enslave us, what do we do? And I'm like, holy cow. That's a lot of assumptions you're making right there. Like that guy probably loves the flag, loves the soldiers, and he, and he straight up is Michigan militia at the same time. He's like, give him my guns to fight the government, let's go. He loves the government and hates it at the same time. It's a weird dichotomy you see, and it's, it's, it's been that way throughout American history. Patriotic, but don't you touch my stuff. Like it's, it's how we are as people. And because we're like this as Americans, there's always this distrust and a fear of our leadership. Let me tell you something. As Americans, we do not live. We live in a free society in America. We don't live in China. I can talk trash on Biden on Trump, on whoever I want. And people go, hey, hey, that was pretty good. You know what I'm saying? Freedom. China had a protest last week that built in power for like two or three days. And then one day, all the foreign press got arrested and the protest stopped. I wonder what happened behind those, those borders. The World Cup's going on in Qatar right now. In Iran, there is a, uh, a movement because a young Muslim woman didn't wear the correct head covering, was arrested, and the morality police killed her. They did more than kill her. They, 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 they killed her horribly. And so women in Iran started walking outside, taking their headscarves off in protest. And that's against a religious tyranny. Like they're ruled by Muslim Sharia law out there. And the women were like, it ain't right. But it's bravery I don't even understand. At the stinking 
soccer game between America and Iran, the Iranian soccer players didn't stand for national, their, their pledge of allegiance in solidarity with the women suffering back home. Well, they lost the game. And they're flying back to that world. What's going to happen to them? We don't live in those worlds, just so you know. I don't go home wondering, will the police come and arrest me this night and no one ever hear from me again? I don't worry about that living here. But let's say, I say all that to say this. We had an election two weeks, two weeks, three weeks ago, the midterms. They get pretty hairy around here. A lot of people say a lot of things about elections. Greatest election of our lifetime. Going to lose our country. People talk all this trash. Here's the fact of the matter. Even if a God-hating, tyrannical psycho came into power in America, God is still in control. I'm not saying don't vote. Have an opinion. Go to the ballot box and drop the thing in there. But stop being so afraid of who's going to win. You think the Democrats are going to sneak in like, go, God, I'm going to beat you in a fight. You think the Republicans are going to go, we're going to overthrow the Lord. These guys are a... They can't keep their own parties in line. They're not going to fight the God of heaven. And we're so afraid of them. We don't need to be afraid. God is more powerful than the parties or the presidents or the mayors or the governors. We don't have to live in the fear of this. We don't have to live in fear because God is in charge. And you know what's crazy? Even in China, God is in charge. Even in that chaos where the communists rule with an iron fist and where the believers, their lives can be forfeit at any moment, even then, God has a plan. His purposes can move the hands of kings. Let's bring it smaller. Small. It's really big. The world. Let's go small. Remember once... Well, my wife and I, we got married, uh, we made very little money, and we had all this debt, credit card debt, college debt, debt. And we couldn't afford to pay all the, the bills every month. So I called one of the credit cards to ask them to lower our monthly payment. They have no reason to help me. They'd be like, give me my money, right here, give me my money. They could be mean, hang up the phone, I called them, I'm like, Lord, give me favor with Discover Card today. And I called. I said, listen, we're newly married. We've got no money. Can you give me like a year with a lower payment? I can just have some time to get, catch my breath. I'm like, just waiting. We talked for like a while. I'm like, I'm a pastor. Like I'm I'm playing every card I got. (laughs) Jesus, I just got married. <laughs> That's so bad. Um, and unbelievably, the person on the phone goes, Yeah, 12 months, we'll lower your payment. You're good to go. And it, and I called probably four creditors, and they all worked with us. It was 
It's like the Lord was moving in these random kind of companies to give my wife and I a little room to breathe. Because he's in charge even of those big corporations. God is in control. God can move, God's purposes can move the hands of kings. Now, Cyrus says, go back home. And many of the Jews go back home to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They head back home. And something happens. They start rebuilding the temple. Things are going really well. Then something bad happens. I'll go to Nehemiah 4. Again, Ezra and Nehemiah, these guys are like, they're like, um, these books are very much related. They're both in Jerusalem, coming from Persia, the whole thing. So Nehemiah comes, so Ezra goes, builds the temple. Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls, and this happens in chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we, the Jews, were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall." Pretty good insult. I don't know if They're building these walls. He goes, man, my dog ran out of fall over. They're pretty, he's saying, but they're building so lame and so weak, you're not going to make it. And these two characters, Sanballat and Tobiah, began discouraging the work. They began sending letters to foreign kings to bring opposition to the work in the restoration of Israel. See, God is restoring what had once been destroyed, and as they're trying to rebuild what had once been lost, they face opposition. Strong, vocal opposition. And here's the reality. God, yes, God's purposes can move the hearts of kings and move the hands of kings, but God's purposes will meet opposition. God called these people to go back home to this ruined city and to rebuild what God had once given them. And while they're there, these powerful nations come and start mocking them and just telling them, man, what, you can't, look how bad your sticky city is. This will never, ever be nothing but a pile of rubble. They oppose the work. And here's the fact of the matter. If you decide, you want to be a part of what God's doing in the world. If you want to be a part of what God's doing in the world, you will face opposition. The will of God, even though God is in control, there are powers in the world trying to resist that. And just so you know, those powers are not political powers. The word says, we do not fight against flesh and blood. As believers in Christ, our enemies are not the Muslims. And they're not immigrants. And it's not the LGBT community. These are not our enemies. The church makes these people to fight against. It's like, what are you guys doing? What are we doing? The Bible says our enemies are spiritual. 
the spiritual darkness in high places. Some back in the day, back in the day, Christians used to call Jews Christ killers. And anti-Semitism flowed from that awful statement. That's bad theology and awful hatred. The Jews did not kill Jesus, nor did the Romans. Christ laid his life down for us. No one took it from him. He laid it down. The will of God is opposed. But our enemy is not some political opponent. It's not some political movement. It's not some religious organization across the world. I have heard people rail against Catholics or Hindus or Muslims or Hispanics or African American. People just choose someone to hate and we're missing the point. The only person trying to knock down God's kingdom is the devil and his demons. Everyone else, the Lord wants to save from sin. Everyone else, the Lord is actively trying to bring into his family. Even the people we hate the most, God is chasing down. The people who have hurt us the most, God wants to redeem them. How crazy is that? People do oppose the work of God. They do. And that opposition may show itself in an individual person being crazy. But God can take even his opponents and bring them to his team. It's also that game we used to play when we were kids. Um, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of different uh, you remember playing tag as a kid? Um, there's different different versions of tag. And one of the versions of tag we'd play, which is one of our favorites. Uh, we called it zombie tag when I was in like past youth, youth pastor. There's one guy who's it. He'd run and tag someone. Now those two guys are both it. As, as the game goes on, the team that's it gets stronger and everyone they tag joins their team. So before you know it, it's like 14 kids versus one kid hiding. It's great. Um, and it's hard to beat the 14 kids when they're all chasing you down. Because you can I mean, unless you're really that fast. Um, but like Paul, Saul hated God and fought against Christ and his church. And what did Jesus do to Paul? Enlisted him into the work. Like God called Saul and said, hey, listen, you're not on that team, you're on my team now. And Saul becomes a kingdom warrior. People do oppose God's work, it does. God's purposes are opposed. But here's reality. The devil tried to fight God by killing Jesus. And guess what? God redeemed the devil's intention. The devil's like, I'm going to win. And the Lord redeemed the devil's stupidity. Oh, darn, you killed me. Resurrection. He literally did like a double play on him. It's wild. It's wild. The Lord is in control. The devil is not going to win. Back in the day, I used to watch a lot of cartoons, Looney Tunes. And in the Looney Tune world, there'd always be two things on your shoulders, right? There'd be an angel and a little devil. And they'd whisper in your ear, ah, rah, rah, rah. A lot of times people talk about good and evil as though they're evenly matched. That's not what the Bible teaches. The devil is not going to sucker punch the Lord and win the fight. 
In the Bible, it's not even a fight. The devil is destroyed with a word. With, the devil's already lost the fight. He's loud, talks trash, but he has no strength or power. So the work is opposed. God is doing something in the world, and people do fight against it. But this is how I want to end in Nehemiah. So Cyrus sets the Jews free. The Jews come home and begin rebuilding what God had once established. And I love this part of the Bible because even after the city is burned and it looks like there's no hope, God can rebuild even out of the rubble. God can build something new even when it scorched earth on the ground. I go to Nehemiah 9.32, this is what it says. Nehemiah's preaching says this. He says, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. I love that. Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. It's the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or put attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of the sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So he says, basically in all this, he says, God, you're awesome. And we were so wicked. And now our land is devastated. And we deserve what's happened. It's awful. But we built this burning pile of rubble. We did this to ourselves. But he still says, even though we've done all this, you are still deciding to be faithful against our wickedness. We have been faithless. And you have decided to be faithful. You're going to rebuild even though we don't deserve it. And in verse 3 he says this. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document on the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They decide, God, you're so great, and you're so good, and you're so awesome and mighty. We are going to make a promise to be with you. They draw up this covenant. That's what I want to say to end our time together. God's purposes move the hands of kings, and God's purposes will be opposed. What's crazy in the Bible is that you see that God's purposes are fulfilled through people. That's the weirdest thing in the world. Like, God can do it himself. He even says in the Bible, sometimes, if no one else loves me, the rocks will sing my praise. He says that stuff. He does. But you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see these normal people. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, which is a hilarious name. These guys, God uses them to bring forth his purpose of restoring the nation. God uses 
normal folk throughout the Bible to bring his purposes to fruition. We're doing a study right now at our small groups in the church on the 12 apostles. As we study the 12 apostles, it's really funny how just really bad they all are. Like these guys are not, they're not beautiful, they're not brilliant, they're not wealthy. They're fishermen, which means they're blue-collar workers. But God chooses these normal people to do great work with. We've learned in our study that Thomas goes all the way to India and brings the gospel to India. We learned that Andrew gets all the way to Russia. How crazy is that? We learned last week that Matthew gets all the way to Ethiopia. In one generation, these guys who are not awesome are filled with God's Spirit and do great things for His name. God chooses to work through people, normal folk. Through Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, you see Israel gets rebuilt. The temple gets rebuilt. The walls get rebuilt. Jerusalem once again becomes a kingdom, a nation. The impossible happens. The, the impossible happens. So what I want to say to us is very simple. God is great, and we know this. God is awesome, and we know this. God is doing something in the world, and the only question is this. Do you want to be a part of it? He's doing stuff. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He pointed to a field full of crops ready to be harvested. He goes, man, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of work to do. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. God's moving. Do you want to join him? The Bible calls us co-laborers with Christ. What are you and God working on together? He's doing stuff. We are... Um, when I was young, we had, uh, I had to do driver's training class to get my license. And uh, you had to pay like money and you go into a driver's training class... And uh, cars are different. There's like two types of cars I've seen. One type of car is you're in the driver's seat, and the guy only has a brake pedal on his side. You ever see that? He, he, he can brake you. He can stop you. But some cars, he's got the full thing next to you. He's got the brakes, the gas, and a steering wheel. Like it's like two. It's like, it's like a cockpit almost. It's like it's like pilot and co-pilot. And he lets you drive. And if you're if you're gonna kill everybody, he grabs the wheel and he like takes over the car. A lot of us think of life that way. We think, like, even that song that's really famous, Jesus Take the Wheel. So we assume, I'm driving, I'm in control, doing my thing, and if stuff gets real bad, I'm like, Jesus, tag in! That's how we think of our life. I'm driving, I'm in control, I make the plan, and if it gets real bad, tag, baby, save us. That's how we act. Listen, you may think you're driving the car, in reality, you're in the back seat with a little plastic toy string wheel. You're just like, beep, beep, click, 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 click. You're, you think you're driving, and the world is moving. And it's not because of your movement. Like, you turn the wheel, the car moved. That was the coincidence. 
That was, that was not you. The Lord is going somewhere. The question is this. You could look at your little thing and be like, this is the greatest toy I ever had. Or, or, you put your toy down and say, Lord, what are you doing? Where are we going? How can I help? How can I be a part of what you're doing in the world? Because I don't want to be on the sidelines. I don't want to just be a fan waving a baton or waving a flaggy thing. I want to be on the field. I want to be a part of the story. I want to be part of the story. I don't want to live my life and just watch it all pass me by. I want to be a part of it. Now I know I know it's hard. I know we all got enough pain to fill up buckets of tears. And we're like, listen, I have so much hurt, how can I help anybody else? How can God use me who is so broken and wounded to do anything good in this world? Listen, I don't know much, but it seems to be that in God's economy, only wounded healers can heal. Unless you've been greatly broken, there's not much you can give to a broken world. It's not that God uses in spite of our brokenness. God uses us within our brokenness. And as you've been listening and loving others, it's crazy how when you love others, the burdens you carry begin to be shared. They become less. You truly learn that Christ is right when he said, it is better to give than to receive. God restored the nation of Israel. God did the impossible. Ezra didn't do it. Nehemiah didn't do it. Zerubbabel didn't do it. But they got to be part of the story. They got to be on the front line watching God do all the stuff. They got to see God's power and go, man, this is awesome. And we can too. I'm going to ask Pastor James and Pastor John to join me at the front. And we're going to end our time together taking communion. So, on the night Christ was betrayed, Christ took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He says, often as you do this, do this in memory of me. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been breaking bread and drinking of the cup to remember that Christ died that we may live. As we take communion today, as we pass this around, I want you to take time to pray and say, Lord, if you and the Lord are fighting, talk to the Lord about it. If you're living in sin, repent. It's time to pray. When it passes around, and we all have the elements. We'll go ahead and we'll take together. Now, who can take of this? You don't got to be a member of Flint City. If you love Jesus, you can take communion. If right now, you and God are like in a fight, you're allowed to let the, let, let the thing pass you, okay? No one's going to yell at you. 
not going to be like, I saw you not take on Sunday. I'm not going to chase you down or be mean. You're allowed to pass and say, you know what? There's too much going on in my heart. I, it's not today. It's, it's, it's allowed, okay? But if you love the Lord, you're allowed to partake in the communion today. Um, there's no shame in passing it. So we're going to pass. Um, and uh, Ricky, can you come and give us some, some stuff while it goes around? Um, take a cup. Hold on to it. Don't take it. We'll take it together as a community, okay? So we're going to go ahead and bring communion together. Two thousand years, Christians around the world have been doing this. Not with this silly cup. We do this because of germs. I love to do a big loaf of bread, and we all pick a piece off. But that's we do this to remember that Christ died that we may live, and we do this to remember. Christ said, "Do this until I return." We remember that someday He's going to come back and deal with all this stuff, isn't He? All those in power who use their power to hurt others, Christ is going to smoke those fools. And we long for that day when those who hurt the poor and the weak will be judged by the Lord God of heaven. So we're opening up the, the clear part first. Open the clear. And we pull out the little wafer. 
On the night when Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, for us. Let us take. We can open up the, the, the liquid now. Jesus said in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for your sins. Let us take. Father in heaven, Jesus, thank you for dying that we may live. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. God bless you this week as you go. Let's be the church together. Leave these on the pew. We'll throw them away ourselves or we throw them in the trash. Whatever you do, you are dismissed. God bless you all.